You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? It's another amazing Wednesday and another great day to listen to another conversation to get inspired. But first, this podcast is brought to you by OMD Ventures, my platform for everything focused on human capital investing. If you don't know what that means, that's a great reason to go check out my site. You can find it all on omdventures.com. And you can find all kinds of weekly content that I pump out from my weekly newsletter, my weekly article, podcast, and now also a vlog as well. If you're not subscribed to the newsletter, you are missing out. So sign up right away. All the links related to the vlog, the newsletter, the the listener survey, everything's just in the description below. And, you know, continue to support the community and I should be part of it too. I listen to a lot of your feedback. And if you want to reach out and grab coffee with me, I actually grab a lot of coffees with a lot of my listeners. Surprise, surprise. Also, if you want to help out the podcast it would be great if you left a five-star review or if you rated it five stars and then you left the review on iTunes. And for the Android users, I think you can leave a review on cast.fm if that's the player you listen to. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, I don't know. Just spread the word. Tell more people about it. That, that's always the best way. More listeners, the better because... I just really want more people to hear all these cool stories and just get inspired and do even cooler shit. And so today's guest is Megan Tong, who has also done cool shit herself. She is the co-founder of Kanga Aussie Meat Pies. If you don't know what an Australian meat pie is, I suggest you Google it and immediately try to go get one and eat it. If you're a Toronto listener, you're in luck because Kanga's Aussie Meat Pie is based out of Toronto and they are awesome they're actually fantastic i i'm biased because i've been a long fan of kangami pies before i even knew megan and so this was a great chat for me megan started her journey as an accountant just like me and she's also the alumni of the university of waterloo yes (laughs) um though though you know though she was an accountant she really found her way to her passion of microfinance early. Like she was actually fo- focused on microfinance. And then after even getting that dream job, she left it all to take on this entrepreneurial journey of opening a restaurant. And like I said before, I've been a big fan of Kanga long before I knew Megan. And our chat really just goes through the whole story of how she started the company, operated it, and eventually how she even got to sell the, co- sell the company, the business itself. We really also touch upon how Kanga is not how she quote-unquote retired and gained her financial freedom, but it was actually through her side hustle to her entrepreneurship, which was real estate. And so there's a kind of a kicker in the story about that as well. This was generally a very insightful conversation into the restaurant business that I wasn't too familiar with, and you just get a lot of great insights out of that, and we also crush these common myths about selling businesses and not to mention just be just focused on this idea of just trying to focus on having fun in your everyday life and that is this constant guiding principle that really helped Megan just do all these cool ventures she did and even now to her current venture of trying to help people in their personal finance and so this was a cool uh, conversation with a really fun entrepreneur and so I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Megan Tong Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Megan Tong. Hey Megan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Megan here is one of the co-founders of Kangami Pies. You might have seen it uh, walking about in downtown Toronto. And for Megan, um, you, you're quite an entrepreneur yourself. You know, Kangami Pies is just one other thing that you're doing. And so my question for you is, when you meet someone for like the first time and typical Toronto fashion is to just bluntly ask, so what do you do? That's like the first question I think Torontonians commonly ask. How do you answer that question? Um, yeah, if someone asked me that question now, um, I'd probably tell them that 
I'm starting a new business. It's called Money Six Pack, and it's around helping people get control of their financial lives. So it's around a little bit empowering people through like financial literacy, but more also coaching them. Um, so yeah, that's something that I feel that people are missing with their money. There's no accountability. And so a lot of people, first of all, don't know how to manage their money. And secondly, just maybe they do know how and they just don't do it. Just mm. like everybody knows they should go to the gym, but not everybody goes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm starting a new business called Money Six Pack. Okay, so last time we spoke about it, like you're you're telling me that yeah, this is an idea. You were testing it out, so now it's like a full full fledged thing. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's much more baked than the last time we talked. Honestly, it's a uh, it's in process. It's gotcha. it's baking. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that's something that you're very familiar with in terms of constantly baking out the process. But um, <laughs> last when we first spoke, you mentioned about how you know making money was always like a big part of why you did you know what you did. And how you always like, you know, had this idea of like, um, that you wanted to be rich, you wanted to be wealthy. And I'm wondering, was that like, how early was that in like baked into your mindset? Was it as like a child, like you always had like a fascination with, you know, wealth and finances? Um, yeah, I think it was from when I was a kid, probably. Um, I mean, yeah, I've always been interested in money and how to have a lot of it and how to be able to do anything that I wanted to do. I'm not sure exactly when it set in, but I definitely remember when I was a child, I was thinking like, you know, being Asian, as you may guess from my last name, um, my parents were always like, okay, there's only four jobs that exist in the world. This is it. This is all there is. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or an accountant. And then maybe if you really fly off the rails, you can be an architect. Um, so I was like, okay, I like business. I like money. I'll be an accountant. And, um, you know, that's what led me to do my CPA eventually. But I, I really do like money and, and what money can do for you. Gotcha. And were your parents any of the four? Or the potential No, parents? actually, oh, it's true, actually. I guess their world expanded a little bit further. They were pharmacists. Gotcha. Okay, <laughs> okay. So that I guess they, they had that kind of the science background and so they didn't try to push you to become like a doctor or anything? No. Well, I mean, they presented it as one of the four options. So right. maybe they did try to influence us. And interestingly, my older sister is now a doctor and my younger sister is a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So as you can see, there wasn't a lot of original thought there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it, it kind of feels like maybe that maybe you're this, the middle child. So the first, your si older sister got the blunt of it saying, you have to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's honestly pretty funny because my parents are not, like, tiger parents at all. Like, um, you know, my sister, she actually went to become an engineer and then eventually she went into medicine and then, uh, you know, I, I started off as an accountant and then I eventually had my own business making, like, meat pies, which my parents were extremely supportive of. Okay. And my little sister, she was just, like, she was doing marketing and then she kind of had a gap year in... in Shanghai, yeah. And then, um, you know, my dad was just like, maybe you should, like, think about becoming a lawyer. So we just kind of, like, brought it up again when she was, like, 27 or something or 26. And she was like, you know what? Maybe maybe I'll have a look at that. And now she's a lawyer. So. Nice. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you and I are both alumni from Waterloo's accounting program. And so after that, you you went to, see, uh, to be, I guess, an accountant at KPMG. Um, same as me as well. That's where I got my taste of accounting as well and after that though before going into the meat pies you exited into mastercard foundation as like a financial analyst at that point and it seems that like what was your kind of mentality then like, was it like taking the common route of this is what most people do they get the letters and then they just go into you know one of the industry jobs was oh that the no mindset no there? not at all actually um I developed a real passion for microfinance, actually. Um, oh, while you were while you were at KPMG? Yeah, actually, way before KPMG um, in university, I actually started a microfinance club at the University of Waterloo. No way. Um, yeah, so I was really, really interested in that, looking at how um, money and access to credit could lift people out of poverty. Um, and, you know, it had a really amazing narrative around it at that time, like Mohammed Yunus, he won a Nobel Prize for, you know, having invented microcredit. At the time, it was called microcredit. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, the promise of giving 
a poor person a small amount of money, giving them the means to buy themselves assets that they could then produce income with um, and thereby lift their family out of poverty was really like an amazing idea, right? Like, so instead of just having somebody like weave baskets or something like giving them the money so that they could buy chickens so that they could like get eggs and sell the eggs and then use the proceeds to send their children to school, um, for example. So that's kind of uh, the whole narrative around it back then. Now, now people understand that it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but anyways, I was always really, really interested in microfinance, microcredit. Um, and I wasn't looking for a job at all, actually. And um, when I was at KPMG, I was happy there. And my friend just said, hey, Megan, there's this amazing job for this comp- uh, this not-for-profit called MasterCard Foundation, and their mandates are to do microfinance and, um, and education projects in sub-Saharan Africa. So um, that's why I left, really, because it was such a good fit. Like, it was totally, I was really passionate about it, and... Um, yeah, it was a great opportunity, but I wasn't looking at the time. Okay. And how how did you even get passionate about microfinance? Was that an, a thing that you always had as uh, growing up as well, that you wanted to help countries in poverty or, you know, third world countries? What, what was what was about like microfinance that really just triggered you as this is it? Like this, it's, you know, so clear, so obvious. Yeah, I think from an early age, I always felt like, wow, the world just like does not make sense at all. Um, Like as an example, you know, I went to the St. Lawrence market the other day and I'm sitting there eating oysters with my girlfriend and we put away like, you know, more than a dozen each and we go to pay and it's like over 40 bucks and whatever. I didn't care about it at all, but I'm thinking to myself, wow, I just ate like more than $40 worth of oysters and there's people who don't have food to feed their children. Um, there's literally people who are starving. Like this is this is not okay. And this is, um, you know, the world is it's a great place, but in that respect, um, like the disparities between rich and poor, um, it's totally broken. Um, so I've always kind of felt that way. I don't know from what age, but from a young age. Um, mm. Yeah. So just thinking about ways that I could help, and yeah, at the time when I was in university, I thought microfinance was really, really, really interesting. Um, yeah, and I was always really interested in like environmental projects as well. Um, so yeah, just feeding that throughout my life, like that interest, I guess, like I just organized an auction to, uh, donate the proceeds to Oxfam to end world hunger. So I'm still finding ways to, um, to help in that area. Mm -hmm. It's really important to me. And in terms of the, as you just mentioned about, you know, hunger, obviously world hunger is different, but we now kind of catch upon this i guess segue into your uh restaurant business kangami kangami pies and so i know what an australian meat pie is but for someone who doesn't know what an australian meat pie is how do you how would you describe it and this is difficult because you can't show a picture of it so how would you describe it to someone just by audio oh yeah no problem this is an easy question for me so it makes an australian meat pie different than regular meat pies is that they have a really flaky pastry on top. Um, so think of kind of almost like a croissant, like a puff pastry on top. It is a puff pastry on top. And it's personal size. So it actually fits in your hands. It's meant to be eaten like a hamburger. And uh, the filling inside is usually, well, it's a savory filling, but it's also really gravy. So it's really saucy. Um, not like uh, the Canadian tortier, which is very dry. Um, it has a lot of delicious beef and gravy or chicken and gravy inside. Yeah, no, it's it's honestly amazing. Like I, I went to Kangami Pies without knowing that you, you know, were the co-founder of it, and I, I was a frequent, um, you know, I guess, goer of it. I had the stamp cards and I collected <laughs> it. Oh, oh, totally like, amazing! Yeah, yeah. I got like four like, at was a it time. Like, buy ten, get one free. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I thought I was like, oh, that's gonna be easy. These are small, but they're so filling. Like, these are really <laughs> filling pies. Like they can be a meal. Yeah, um, they're delicious. And so. You, you told me about how, you know, the first inkling of, you know, setting up Kangami Pies came out when you when you and your, I guess, co- who became a co-founder at the time went to a food venue and you guys thought, you know what, we, we can do something like this. And let's, you had just come back from Australia and you thought, okay, let's do meat pies. Why meat pies? What's, what was so special about these meat pies? Why meat pies? Oh, just like, you know, I was sitting there chatting with my friend Aaron and, and Monica as well. And uh, Aaron and I were telling Monica, Aaron, so Aaron's my co-founder with Kanga, and she had 
been living in Australia or she had lived in Australia for a number of months and I had just returned. So we were telling Monica about these amazing meat pies that they have in Australia. And she was like, oh, I've never had one like that before. And I think that's what kind of sparked it. Just the idea of, um, we don't have it here. You know, Toronto has everything, but we didn't have any handheld Australian style meat pies. That and also just thinking, you know, like what would be an interesting thing to bring to the Toronto underground market, which is that food kind of event that you're talking about. Right. And did you know how to make a meat pie? Did you learn it? While you oh were my God, no. <laughs> so, but however, having said that, like I had been to cooking school and so had Erin. She was all just finishing at George Brown. Um, like we, she did it as like a side thing alongside her corporate job. And I did it when I was in university in one of the summers. And uh, so we knew basics about cooking and cuisine, um, but I had never worked in a restaurant before. Aaron had never worked on the cooking side of a restaurant before. Um, so, yeah, we just started Googling. <laughs> and um, really, you can get really far. And it's really, it's just trial and error, honestly. Um, so, yeah, we started off with, like, the Martha Stewart pastry for uh, for puff pastry and I think some other puff pastry. And then eventually we just, like, tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it until it was it had the effect that we wanted it to have. And same thing with the fillings. So, yeah. Okay, wow. So you just constantly just made it, ate it, tried it out, and just constantly just repeatedly did that process, I guess. Yeah, wow. yeah, exactly. And the thing is that, like, you know, recipes, people are like, oh, it's the secret recipe. Like, don't tell anyone the secret recipe. And in the food industry, it's really not about the recipe. The only place where it really is the recipe is, like, Coca-Cola. But everyone else... It's not about the recipe because, like, you'll see lots of great restaurants that'll put out a cookbook with, like, all the recipes, but it doesn't mean you're going to go make it at home, right? It's also, like, the methodology. And, like, you know what? Even if you can make a pie at home and you can make it delicious, it's a ton of work. So you're generally not going to do that, right? Um, so it's not about the secret recipe. It's often about methodology and, and also just, you know, making it available, yeah, and like you said, most people won't go out of their way to make a pie, and that's why I buy my pies. But you know, you were the I guess anomaly out there where you said, "No, we're gonna make, we're gonna be the ones that make that pie." <laughs> we're gonna make five hundred <laughs> pies by hand. <laughs> exactly. So that that process, um, you told me how the first time you went to actually go sell kangaroo pies when it was the first revenue model there was to go to. Uh, I think it was like a food, another food venue or was it at Underground that you actually brought it? Was it was at the Toronto Underground Market. Okay, so you brought yeah. it, you actually brought it there. That was the mission. You, you succeeded. You brought it. You had 500 meat pies. Like, what was that thought process like? Like, was that the whole goal the, the whole time while you're built making these pies with your friend? Like that, okay, we're just going to sell it at the Underground. It's going to be fun. And that's just it. Like, no, no other, like, bigger dreams or hopes about it. Yes, exactly. We had no further plan for it. And Aaron even told me later that, like, someone approached her and was like, oh, you're starting a little business. And she literally just laughed at them because she was like, no, 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 it's not a business. It's just like a little project that we're doing. Um, so it really, really started out as just a discreet little fun project that we wanted to do with no further thoughts on, on you know, making it into anything else. And was it easy to set up in the Toronto Underground? Do you just apply and say, hey, we want to sell Australian meat pies? And they yeah. say, yeah. Well, um, is it easy? It was pretty easy. I don't know if it was that easy. Like, we applied, we did a paper application, and then, you know, we perfected our recipes over a number of months, and then we brought it to, like, trial day. So trial day is kind of like tryouts where, like, everyone brings their food, and then, like, the top ones are selected to oh, actually okay. sell at the market. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there were lots of people at tryouts, um, and... Yeah, we were pretty excited that we got selected, actually. Um, so was it hard? Now thinking back on it, like, I think at the time there were a lot of steps, but it's so funny because once you've accomplished something, you're like, no, that wasn't hard. You know what I mean? But yeah, like when you're actually going through it, it was, I guess, yeah, I could totally imagine that, oh man, we got to fill out this paper application. Oh man, we got to <laughs> we gotta try out. We got to get these all tested and people are going to eat it and they're going to judge us. And Totally, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We, were, we were like pretty stressed that first not stressed but kind of excited anxious apprehensive that first day that we had them try our pies but and i remember like getting the email or whatever it was that said that we got in we were very very excited yeah i can imagine and you told me how it was 
quite a success. All 500 pies were sold at Underground, it seems. Yeah, it was a huge success. So I think that's what gave us the taste that like this might be something bigger um, when, you know, we just opened up and we saw like the huge line that we had and, um, you know, people ate everything at the market and they came back for a pie after, like after they'd already eaten a pie and they're like, this is the best thing here. It's so good. And um, they were just really, really excited about it and they thought it was delicious, which yeah. it was. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can attest to that. It is delicious. <laughs> and so, but how did you get over that hurdle though then of, oh, this was just going to be one event. Um, we were just going to do the underground, but then now what did you and Aaron talk about in terms of, okay, should we do a second one, a third one? How far are we going to take this? Yeah. So then we, we literally just kept doing these little pop-ups. Um, sometimes they were little, sometimes not so little. Um, yeah, there were other pop-ups at like music festivals and things like that. And then where it kind of like took the next step was when we signed up to do another Toronto underground. So this was like way after the first one that we did. And, um, we needed to make, instead of making 500, which was the normal number of servings that you were supposed to make for the market, we were supposed to make like a thousand servings, a thousand pies. Okay. It took us literally weeks to make 500 pies because the labor, uh, like it, it was such a long process to make the pies because you have to fold them and fold them over. Like anyone who knows about pastry can understand it's a, it's a layered pastry. So it's very, very labor intensive. Um, so you know, we were like, wow, it took us like two and a half weeks to make 500 pies. So if we think about that, it's going to take us like five weeks to make these thousand pies. And we're like, no, no, there's no way we can make pies for five weeks. Like after our day jobs, this is just way too crazy, way too much. Um, so, you know, it was getting closer and closer to the event. It was getting to like three and a half weeks to the event. So at this point it's pretty much impossible for us to produce a thousand pies because we're already, we don't have enough time. So it's like three and a half weeks of the event. We're like, we need to find someone with equipment. We need to find someone with a dough sheeter. That, so we don't have to roll this stuff out by hand because it's not feasible. Um, so we're on, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, we gotta, you know, we gotta find someone with a sheeter. We gotta find someone who has equipment. Um, and, you know, Aaron had talked to Dufflet, the person who owns Dufflet, which is a pastry shop in, in downtown Toronto. I mean, they do tons of wholesale. They're very, very big, um, like a, a big operation, I guess. Um, and Dufflet was kind of one of Aaron's mentors at the time. And I think they were connected through George Brown. I'm not sure. And, oh. and so she asked Dufflet, like, do you know anyone who can help us with these pies? And she said like, Oh, you know, I think that, I think Hotovan Bakery makes these little pies, like kind of what you're making, you know, maybe you want to check that out. Um, and so she did and she saw the pies. They were small, just like the ones we wanted to make. And uh, we ended up just calling the owner of the Hot Oven Bakery and asking if they could help us. And actually, interestingly, that spurred a relationship that lasted until now. Um, so, yeah. Um, and then they helped us make our pies. And we made them in, like, three days. Wow. <laughs> yeah. When you have the right equipment, it goes a lot faster. Yeah, I bet. And it's, it's cool how, you know, you had this, you committed to it and you had this constraint. And then that kind of forced you guys to hit this inflection point of okay so sh should we reach out and have someone else make our pies and now it's like oh we can do all this in like three days now yes totally it's honestly when you look back on it it's very like it is very step by step by step and that's what i tell people you know if they're if they want to start a business i'm like just start doing things just literally just start doing things start sharing it with people telling people about what you're up to um you know volunteering in the capacity that you're interested in um and yeah as you do things it leads to more things and so that's what happened there right like as we did these markets yeah eventually we reached this capacity constraint we had to go solve our problem we solved the problem which opened up something else now we have somebody helping us make our pies now we can go to wholesale if we want to because before aaron and i were physically like the two of us rolling out all this dough making all this pastry it wasn't scalable by any means, right? But now that we had someone helping us make the pies, we could we could do anything with it. All right, one hundred percent. And you know, you've you've been operating Kanga for I think close to like, what it was five years. And at this point, though, you're still you're still at Mastercard Foundation. Um, and what what was the what was the process like to decide? Okay, we're gonna make Kanga a full time thing. When was that process? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, 
this is another thing where it's like step by step by step kind of thing. So we, you know, we had someone to help us make our pies in the industry. We call that like a co-packer. Um, so we had a co-packer who made our pies and we thought, you know, should we do wholesale? Should we do retail? Um, at the time, you know, Aaron and I were both working um, at our full-time jobs and we thought, you know, wholesale isn't the way we want to go because Australian meat pies are something new for people. So they don't know about them. We want to give them a whole retail experience. Um, oh no, 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 sorry. Before we made that decision, that was after we quit. Sorry. Um, we were launching wholesale. So we did actually decide to, uh, sell our pies at like butcher shops and like cafes and things like that. Um, so we were going to launch wholesale and I was going to take a week off and go to Italy to just have a vacation. And then I thought, you know what, instead of going to Italy, I actually would rather work on the business than go to Italy. So I already had this time booked off from work. So instead of going to Italy, I spent all these days like working like, you know, all day uh, on the business, all day and all night kind of thing. And I thought at the end of that week, I was like, this is so much fun. This is so much more fun than doing my job um, or doing, you know, the, the kind of normal office life, I guess. And I just thought, this is, this is great. I should just do this full time. Um, so I talked to my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband and, um, he was really supportive. He was like, yeah, do it. And I was like, okay, great. So, um, then, uh, probably a couple of weeks after I told Aaron, I was like, Aaron, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to work full time on Kanga. She's like, what? Well, if you're quitting your job, I'm going to quit mine too. Oh, so you decided so, even without telling her. <laughs> and then she's like, okay, yeah. I'm going to do it too. I want to join you. Yeah, yeah. So then we both decided to quit our jobs. And um, I think we quit our jobs pretty much one year from the first time we sold a pie to the public. Wow. Yeah. So through that year, you know, we were doing like pop-ups and all this stuff. And then eventually culminating to like the week off where I spent it like preparing for to launch our wholesale. And then eventually I just quit and Aaron quit. And then, and then that's when we decided, you know, we want to focus more on retail. And so that's when we decided to take the steps to open our first store. Gotcha. And so when you were quitting though, did you have this kind of, you know, as an accountant background, did you have like a cost benefit analysis of, okay, we're going to have this much revenue i'm going to be able to sustain myself financially with you know this kind of <laughs> runway did you did you think about all that stuff or was it much more of the intrinsic of i really like this this week was amazing i just i think this can work and i have this belief and i want to do i just want to go for it what was that thought process um, like honestly i don't really remember um i definitely didn't do anything like really really um diligent like map out my expenses against like the <laughs> amount of money I had in my account and like determined that I had exactly like 341 days to like run out of money I didn't do anything like that um but maybe I just felt like I did have enough of a cushion there I'm not sure mm. more of it was just like the excitement and the passion around Kanga and yeah. like building something and I'd always been interested in like business and entrepreneurship and I just thought this is like such an awesome business and it's so fun. Um, so I think a lot of it was just the passion for it. Um, although I did have for sure a means of like paying my rent and yeah. Um, and it's so interesting because people are always like, well, wow, your business was doing so well that you could quit your job. And it's like, no buddy, I quit my job so I can make the business do well. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's just really interesting to see people's perceptions. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that's, it's funny. Like every time I tell people that, oh yeah, I'm doing the podcast full time and stuff. And then they go, oh wow. So you must be making a lot of money then. I'm like, nope, not at all. <laughs> not at all. You're mistaken, my friend. <laughs> exactly. And, and, exactly. And so like, but you still change your strategy after you and Aaron quit. Like you, you had this, you were like, okay, we're, this wholesale stuff, this is what we're going to do. And then you guys quit and then you go, never mind, we're going to pivot. We're going to do retail and we're going to open a store. Like it just seems so like for me as someone who's never like even, you know, opened a store or even thought about that process, it just seems so kind of far away of how does that even happen? How, how do you, you know, just go about creating a whole store from scratch, like getting the permits to rent? Like what is all that like just going through that? Yeah, that's really step by step. But also like it wasn't necessarily like really a pivot because we continued to do wholesale actually because all we had to do was like deliver pies to people, right? So it, it wasn't necessarily an an um, you know, 
one or the other really it, we could do both at the same time and we did do both for a long time it's just like we focused like if we wanted to make wholesale our whole business we were gonna have to like spend full time and beyond making it um uh, like all of our efforts on that so we operated wholesale more as just like a little side thing from kanga's main retail um but if we wanted to make wholesale our actual business we would have had to like you know start developing relationships with grocery we would have had to change like our whole like manufacturing and everything like that so or not manufacturing but where we made the pies and um everything so for many reasons we decided to not focus on wholesale although we still did a little bit of it and we decided to go the retail path um in terms of like how do you go from like thinking maybe i should open a store to like actually like putting a sign on your door and like everything um it it is it is very very step by step um like you know okay you want to have a store okay well where should you have it who knows like we were literally like driving all around toronto like looking at different neighborhoods like should it be in little italy should it be in the financial district should it be like up north uh, like who knows right um so really just uh, but but what we did do a lot was try to find people to talk to um so we reached out to the owner of prairie girl bakery which has a a model that's a little bit similar to ours in that she specializes in like one thing and just does that one thing really, really well. Um, and I love Prairie Girl Bakeries and Jean Blacklog is the owner and, and to this day she's, you know, a very close friend and, and mentor um, for both Aaron and myself. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, we asked Jean, for example, we asked lots of other people too, um, but we asked Jean and, and Jean's view really, really stuck with us. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, Jean was like, you want to be where the people are. You don't want to be like at Bayview. You want to be, or like in little Italy, like you need to be where like, there's a lot of people. So that's why we ended up in like very close to the financial district. Um, so yeah, um, really just asking people how to get to the next step, what they did. Um, and then you just, you know, make a list and start ticking things off, find a location, find money, um, source source appliances and yeah like you make like mistakes that are later hilarious um can you like, tell me about one yeah yeah yeah. so uh, one of the funny mistakes that we made after well not after it was funny at the time we were just like banging our heads on the table was um we thought oh we're gonna one of our friends told us you should get your equipment at auction like all your restaurant equipment at auction because it's so cheap it's so much cheaper this is a person who owned a food truck we're like oh yeah 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 that's a great idea so we go to the auction we start buying all of our equipment we buy our double ovens our fryer everything like that right um opening day um or maybe it was like two days before opening or something we go to light things up the fryer doesn't work the starter doesn't work as it turns out the starter on a fryer is like literally the most expensive thing on the whole fryer uh so we have to have like the starter replaced for like 200 dollars. we paid like 250 dollars for it like at, at the auction right also when you're at an auction like if things are just getting bit up we see other people there it was super super fun like it's a live auction like with a real person being like and we're like yeah we're like bidding is super fun we got all this stuff which we thought was like super cheap it was super cheap compared to new Anyways, over the course of one year, literally every single every single piece of equipment that we bought broke. <laughs> so you better bet that the next store that we did, we bought all new. Oh yeah, <laughs> like I think we might have bought one thing used, but as it like buying used equipment is totally fine if you know how to buy used equipment. If you don't know jack shit about equipment. Guess what? It's just like buying a car. You can't just like go to a lot and be like, hey, that one, it's red. I like red. Let me take that one home and it's $5,000. Okay, here's $5,000, right? Like you have to know something about cars to buy used cars. It's the same thing about restaurant equipment. So like the double ovens that we got, we didn't know this, but like they were like 12 years old. Oh, <laughs> Wow. I don't and know they all, ran that long. Right? And all we had to know, all we had to do to like actually see the age of it was open the oven doors and there's like a barcode at the bottom and it tells you the year that it was like made. Oh. And so the first time someone came to repair it, they looked at it and they're like, this oven is 12 years old. <laughs> we were like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> yeah, so you do things like that, but... Yeah, so you, you've been operating um, Kanga for, you know, about like five years and what... I'd definitely be curious to like learn more about what are some things that people just 
are completely oblivious of like the the real like things are like really hard about actually running uh, a restaurant. Um, like there's like the big obvious things I think where people go, oh yeah, you know, like you can't predict customer preference. You don't know when they'll come. Sure, like there's like cyclicality of it, but I'm just also wondering. Like, there's got to be like more things. Like as I, you know, I think I previously told you about how. I'm talking to my friend who owns a pizza shop and he's telling me about, dude, it's really hard finding part-time employees. Like they only come in the summer when the kids don't have school. And then what happens after that? They all leave. Or um, you'll have a few kids who just steal money out of the cash register constantly. Oh, and yeah. you don't know that until like later on. Mm-hmm. And these are problems I just never even thought about or considered because when you're in the corporate world, it's just, oh yeah, you know, you're going to get caught. You're not going to do that. But when you're in a restaurant world, it just it's a completely different role out there. Yeah. It's a totally different role out there. Um, like what are some big kind of memories that kind of come to mind? You talked about like one funny mistake that you made early on when you opened, but are there other ones that kind of stick out as, oh man, these were big learnings? Um, well, I learned more about pest control than I ever thought I would know in my life. <laughs> um, I can tell you all about how pests get in and how the measures that we take that not just we, but like every restaurant everywhere takes to like keep them out. Um, so that was one thing that was like, wow, I had no idea. I would learn so much about like, you know, mice, rats, cockroaches, you name it, like random fly things and like it it sounds really bad and like maybe it sounds really gross I don't know but I'll tell you that it's like every single restaurant everywhere and has to deal with that and there's a reason that it's called pest control and not pest extermination and that's because you never exterminate you, you can't exterminate them it's just it's simply like picture being in a war and every day you go to battle and some days you win and some days they win (laughs) and you go through like you go through periods where you know you're getting the upper hand and then other periods where they got the upper hand what is the upper hand when the pet what what does it look like when the pest get the upper hand (laughs) when the pest get the upper hand well i don't get too graphic but like you know you'll just see like mouse droppings on the floor and you're like oh my god or maybe um you know maybe you'll see something that you're like Oh my god! Oh my god! Okay, we need to like, we need to get the upper hand. <laughs> we need to like go into battle. We need to get reinforcements. You call your, you call your non-exterior exterminator, pest control man. He comes in with reinforcements. He does a bunch of stuff. You patch up a bunch of holes and things like that. Um, but it's uh, it's it's like, and Kanga does a really great job of it. So I don't want to put us in like a bad light and say like, uh, say that like. No, they do a great job of it. It's just that, like, when you're in a place that's dense and there's garbage everywhere, like, if you look outside of restaurants, they'll always have a dumpster. And guess what? That's, like, a buffet for mice, right? Like, and it's it's not, like I said, it's not specific to anyone. It's just every single restaurant. So that was one, one thing that I never imagined, like, dealing with so much. Um, other things that are interesting... Well, really, I think the challenge of the food business is just that, like, you need to, um, it's not really uh, amenable to being a lifestyle business. So if you think, like, okay, I'll just build it up, and then it'll just, like, run itself into the future, and I'll just, like, collect myself, like, a little royalty, and, like, that'll be great. No, it's not like that at all, because of all the things that you said. Like, the, think about, like, um, there's, like, colander and you're trying to catch some profit. But the colander has lots of holes in it. And if you're not there to like stop things from like leaking out the bottom, like stopping too much food waste, for example, um, stopping labor costs from running up, really a good a good restaurant makes 10% um, in profit. So I'll tell you that 10% will go away so fast you won't even know it hits you. Um, if you're not if if you don't if you're not diligently watching your business, and I'm sure your friend with the pizza place. It's probably experienced the same thing, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I've been talking to him about, why don't you just get a manager, man? Why can't you just step away from it? Like, you just can't. You can't. It's so much easier said than done. You just can't. Yes, exactly. And I will say we were so lucky to have great, great managers. But And and so they did help us stop up a lot of the holes, and they were amazing. And we did eventually get it to sort of um, get to step away from it a little bit. But the, uh, the thing that 
um, that you still need to be doing is finding ways to drive sales. Like if you look at McDonald's and you look at like all the new things that they come out with all the time, um, it's amazing, right? They're constantly revamping their menu, introducing like McRib pizza, whatever this McFlurry that, um, and developing new things because they know that they need to bring something new to their customers to keep them coming back. Something new and fresh. McCafe was launched. Those are huge, huge endeavors. Um, and that's something that like your manager can't do, right? Like invent new types of pies, invent new types of promotions, find new ways to get people in the door, expand, find new locations. Um, so you need, yeah, it's not one of those businesses that's just like four hour work week kind of thing. Right. (laughs) Um, or, or it can be, but you're not going to be pulling in a ton of money if you operate it like that. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. That, that makes total sense. And for you then what, what was that process like deciding to, um, sell Kanga and saying that okay this this is the kind of end of my journey with this business what what was going through your head when you were thinking about that yeah so a number of things were going through my head um you know we were getting hammered with a few things which are not extraordinary but did make a bit of an impact like the minimum wage in Ontario was going from up from like $11.40 to $14 um, which is pretty substantial labor is a huge huge cost driver in restaurants um so you know that would mean like the price of our like the price of our pies to us was going up, like our labor at the store was going up and things like that. Um, I know that I, I know, you know, for me and Canada, businesses are evaluated based on their net income. So I saw we were going to take a hit on our net income that we would have to like, you know, spend the next year or two, like climbing back out of kind of thing. Um, but more than external factors like that, um, I think I just felt like I wasn't, I, I didn't have like, that passion, that fire for it that I had before. And I could see that it was really going to take, like we were kind of at a place where it was just okay. And if we wanted to take it to that next level, it was going to require a really big financial investment. Um, and I saw, I, I looked at how, you know, how Kanga was performing versus like, for example, like, you know, my husband and I have like some real estate uh, investments and stuff like that. And the amount of work that it took versus like how much, uh, the kind of returns that you see, of course, nothing can compare to real estate in Toronto over the past few years. So I totally get that. And it's unfair to compare any business to like, Oh, well, I don't do anything in my, my, you know, my house just increased by like 5% or whatever. Um, so I get that. Um, at the same time, I felt like, you know, do I want to take on this huge risk with Kanga and, throw a lot, lot more at it? Or do I feel like now is a good time and, you know, we can, we can take our money off the table. We can make a good gain and be happy with it and be happy with where we brought it to. And so, you know, then I started talking about it with Aaron and, um, and we just both came to the same conclusion, I guess, that like, we didn't need to sell it. We just thought, you know, at this point in our lives, we can see. And the thing is, you never want to sell a business when, when you need to sell it, right? You, you need to sell it at a high, like, or not you need to, but you want to sell it at a high when it's doing well and everything like that. So we, we thought, you know, let's just float it out. And if something comes back at the price we want, we'll go for it. If not, like, we'll just be happy running it and just keep it where it is fine. Um, so yeah, we put it out and within like three or four months, we had an offer that was like pretty much almost bang on our asking. Oh, and it, you quietly alluded to your, real estate investments and so you're from our conversation it seems like you're still kind of a real estate mogul yourself and that you've been building up this real estate investment that you've had for i think more than like seven years or so right you've been investing pretty early on in your career yeah yeah actually it has been more than seven years i think it's been nine years even oh is it okay yeah yeah well, no 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 i think it has been seven years you're okay. right um yeah it's, it's funny because um when you're telling me about like how you sold Kanga and stuff, um, you talked about how your friends thought, oh, so you must be set now. You sold a business. <laughs> like it's actually, you know, like I read about it all the time on like TechCrunch and when companies sell, they get millions and you can retire. And you're <laughs> you quite uh, nicely responded. Yeah, I told them, nah, man, it's my real estate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. There is another instance where like, 
you know, people's assumptions are so different from reality, right? Like, yeah, people are like, holy shit, like, this is so amazing. You're retiring because I was like retired for a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it truly was just that. It was the real estate, not Kanga. Kanga, we, we did well in it, but like, well is, is all relative and definitely not the kind of money you can retire on. <laughs> and so how, how, did, how did the real estate happen? Like, was that something else on the side that you started getting like modest like interested in you're like what if i bought a house as an investment and continue like buying more yeah um so as i said i've always been interested in money and how to be financially free and everything so from a young age like you know when i graduated university i started reading books i think my husband said he read rich dad poor dad and that's what kind of made him think about it but I think I don't know if I read that book or maybe another one but thinking about like investing and like investing in assets and then I went to um I joined this club called rain the real estate investment network which was a really really good network full of people that like they met once a month that um full of people who actually invested in real estate like people who had like you know 10 properties all the way to like 400 properties kind of thing um or you know even like one or two properties with people who were actually doing it um so that really inspired me i did a weekend course with them called acre i I think it's the authentic canadian real estate course or something which was really really good and really gave you everything you need to know to start um so i felt like yeah you know okay i got i got the knowledge i need i'm gonna go buy a house um and so i bought i bought a house and then my husband bought a house and we were on income property this show um and they duplexed our house for us and and then yeah we just kind of kept going with it um so yeah you make it sound like it's so easy <laughs> <laughs> Did, well were you doing these courses like while you're working or was this when you were yes. like okay yeah yeah well, the acre course was just a weekend gotcha. um and then the like the rain meetings were once a month so okay. they were like out in mississauga like honestly like it, it, yes it is like i don't think anything is really hard but i think it's just consistently moving in a direction like keep taking steps like i'll often talk to people and they'll be like yeah i did this one thing and then there's no follow-up from that they don't take the second and the third and the fourth step there's many 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 steps between having zero properties and having you know eight properties and like 15 doors on them um but it's really just like putting one foot in front of the other and just doing doing the actions and yeah so that's how real estate is too. You know, first you have one house and then you have two houses and then you have three houses and you take on a bigger renovation each time. Um, so that's how you eventually get to have a portfolio that is, you know, some people would think is pretty impressive. Yeah. And unfortunately we can't, unfortunately for my listeners and for myself, we can't dig into that too deep uh, given time constraints for our interview today. But I think that's something I would love to dig into in a future um, sure. episode um but as we kind of hit upon like the closing rounds of our chat today i think i kind of have an idea but i'd still love to hear from you like what this continuous journey you've had of you know moving into mastercard with this passion for microfinance and going to kanga and then you know now trying creating your new venture of going into like personal finance what is your north star that you constantly look to to like really motivate you constantly throughout this journey that you're taking Um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I have no impressive answer <laughs> to your question. That's fine. Um, I think I'm just trying to, I'm still I'm just trying to find my passion, just like everybody else, honestly. Like, I still look at all those people that are like, you know, I, I just love my job and I think it's super, super awesome. And, um, and, you know, I really found like I'm, I'm carving out a better place and, you know, making the world a better place with what I'm doing and everything like that. So I really, really, really admire those people. And so I'm just really on a mission to, to find what lights me up. And I think in addition to like, you know, having to like try lots of things to find the thing that lights me up, um, it's like, yeah, you got to try a lot of things. And at the same time, I'm changing too, right? Like a thing that might've lit me up when I was 18 is not the same thing that like excites me now. So yeah, I'm just constantly, um, you know, thinking about what, what gives me energy, what I love doing, um, where I feel like I can make a great contribution, um, and have fun doing it. Yeah. Fun's important for sure. And you talked about the 18 year old being, you know, having a different mindset, but if you were to think back to your 20 year old self, like the third year or fourth year in Waterloo, what advice do you wish that you could have gotten? Like, or you wish you could give to that 20 year old self? 
Mm. What advice would I give to my 20 year old self? Um, have more fun. <laughs> yes. Um, put your worries into perspective. Um, you know, like it's kind of, well, and that's the thing, right? Like, like a 30 year old person looking at like an 18 year old person's worries don't it seems so piddly right and and I guess that's what I'm thinking now I'm like oh my god you know back in the day when I used to be like oh shit I like bomb my midterm or whatever um like it's just those are not the things that matter right <laughs> um but I honestly think that like I did have some wisdom when I was was 20 year years old and I always made the most of, you know, my time at Waterloo and my co-ops and things like that. So I don't have any regrets really. Um, but just, and, and you know what, I, I actually tell myself that now, like when I have problems that get me down or something, I'm just like, Megan, in two years from now, you're literally going to laugh about this. So just don't, you know, don't get down about it. Put your thing into perspective. I'm sure it's piddly when you really think about it. Perfect. That's, I think that's a great way to end the podcast. Megan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with my listeners and myself as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Bye. Bye now. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.